Hi, everyone. Today is September 27th, 2018. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Our guest today is Chip Gerfin, who is Senior Investigator at the National Institute of Mental Health at NIH. Hi, Chip. Hi, Salma. Thank you. His work has established some of the anchoring principles of basal ganglia organization, and he continues to innovate tools to define the input-output organization of the basal ganglia corticothalamic system, uh, now in the context of behavior also. Around the room, we have Charlie Wilson. Hi. And we have Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we have Todd Troyer. Hello. Welcome, guys. We're going to talk to you today without the benefit of any of your incredible images. So that's going to be an interesting exercise for our listeners. I encourage everybody to look up your work if they, have, if they aren't already familiar with it. I'm just going to start us off with such a, a bald oversimplification, but I just want to get us off to the races. In your work, you, ad- you adapted the state-of-the-art tools of the 80s and 90s to establish some real bedrock principles about input organization of the striatum. Uh, most famously, I guess, the mosaic organization and the principle of D1, D2 segregation of the direct and indirect pathways, output pathways. So these, these ideas seem to point to some really beautiful principles of design economy and discreteness uh, in the system. And they were so important to shaping a field that kind of grew up around a lot of those ideas. And so now it seems like you're using the state-of-the-art tools we have now to kind of blow that up a little bit and, and talk about diversity and um, higher granularity level stuff. So can you say something about that? Yes. <clears throat> um, actually, uh, the, um, uh, it is interesting. The thing I've, I've tried to stress over or think about for most of the time that I've been working on these is... Um, uh, what are the general principles that govern the organization of the circuit system? And so that's the way I think in terms of, you know, establishing what are, um, you know, many others before me and Charlie in particular and have established a lot of the principles of, you know, how the basal ganglia are organized. <clears throat> and, um, but when we talk about it, I say, okay, the cerebral cortex provides input to the basal ganglia and that primarily goes to the striatum. And then there's the output, and the output comes from, you know, GABA neurons in the substantia nigra. And so what the basal ganglia does with the cortical information is between the stridum and the outputs and and all. And so a very important, I think, uh, conceptual framework had to do with the direct and indirect pathways. But people, and I'm guilty of this, I think people, um, uh, you know, it was such a very powerful model, but it's a very powerful model for disease you know, for the disease state in Parkinson's disease. And um, the idea that the direct pathway, <coughs> um, you know, uh, activity through that was responsible for behavior and movement, um, that actually went back to the uh, physiology in the early 80s where, uh, you know, Deneau and the, those guys had established that stimulation of the cortex resulted in... Um, uh, disinhibition through the output system, and um, that so that was the you know that direct pathway was fairly well established in terms of how it affected behavior, and the um, didn't really know what the indirect pathway did, and then uh, when uh, there was later on when it came about that the um, uh, to my mind the most important uh, you know what gave rise to the direct indirect model of of disease was that um, Helen Pan from 
uh, Jack Penny's lab, they showed that uh, following dopamine depletion that there was a decrease in receptor binding, GABA receptor binding, and in the substantia nigra. And then Scott Young came along later on, not so long after that, and showed that following dopamine depletion using the new technique he was using of in situ hybridization, that the peptides that were in the direct and indirect pathways went in opposite directions following dopamine depletion. And um, that actually led to, you know, when I started thinking about that, it's like, well, why are they going in opposite directions? And maybe it's because the receptors on those neurons are different and, and affect that. And so that's where we got involved. But the, um, the uh, uh, you know, it fits so nicely because, okay, so following dopamine depletion, uh, the indirect pathways, neurons, become more active, and that leads, you know, to, uh, you know, um, more GABAergic in, inhibitory output uh, through the system. And, you know, and so it made so much sense for Parkinson's disease. But... Um, only problem was it wasn't true. But the only problem was that it wasn't true. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, and so it worked, for, and, and then it, it kind of snowballed. And so let's back up that it was true to some extent, and, um, the, uh, uh, and it kind of got sidetracked because then Malin and Hagai Bergman and, and Malin DeLong at Hopkins, to test this model, then they lesioned the output of the, they lesioned the subthalamic nucleus, and sure enough, they could reverse the Brady-Kanishian Parkinson's disease. And so then we all went, oh, it's got to be true. You know, the direct pathway is less active, and the indirect pathway being more active, it leads to more inhibition output. And so, you know, all we have to do is like, get rid of that more inhibition. And so it made the model seem great. But then, um, you know, to my mind, it was like Rob Turner's results with um, where he was recording the output pathways and showed that, oh, no. It turns out that, you know, that animals move, you know, the movements don't correlate with, uh, with the model and, uh, and all. And so there was a lot of hand-waving. And, but uh, it comes back to um, the idea that uh, the direct and indirect pathways exist, you know, and I had always said that, you know, uh, that all Charlie's work showing, you know, with intracellular fills, you see that those, you know, that the indirect pathway neurons don't go, don't send an axon past the globus pallidus. There's no arguing with that. And so, because, um, and so that's a general principle. So the, you know, the circuits exist in terms of a gen, you know, very general way. Um, but now we're able to add, you know, look at the, um, you know, the complexity of the system in ways that we hadn't been able to before. So one of the things about that model is that the pathways act in the model, not necessarily in real life, but they act as a unit. So we don't talk about what an indirect pathway neuron does. We ask, what does the indirect <coughs> pathway do? And we don't... There's many indirect pathway neurons, and... Yeah, so that's... That, that was, yeah, that was the point I was trying to get at, which was that in the, in the, mod, in the disease models we looked at the entire output of the whole indirect path, all of the indirect pathway neurons. And so we gave drugs and stimulated them all together. And if you fire all of them together, movements, you know, get uh, inhibited. And so it does exist for the whole thing. But as you say, when you look at the individual neurons, you know, they can be doing a lot of different things during... It wasn't unique. It's not really unique to the basal ganglia. It is... 
it was the 1970s, 1980s view of the brain, which was the brain is made up of nuclei, not of neurons. So that we would talk about some nucleus in the thalamus and, and ask, what does it do? What does the lateral hypothalamus do? What does the spirit colliculus do? We weren't asking what do neurons in those places do. And we just thought of the neurons as ants in an anthill. Each one of them is can't do anything by itself. They can only do something in collaboration. Or that they have to just work in opposing fashion, right? So um, like when we thought about um, spinal projections, motor, motor neurons, in order to move your limb in one direction, that means muscles that would oppose that have to not be fighting it. Yeah. Right? And, and, and it also came from all of that, just these sort of reflex circuits. So the brain just became another big reflex. So we expected when we started looking at neurons that all the neurons of the same type would be exactly the same as each other, yeah. have yeah. exactly the same connections because they were just they were just ants in the ant hill and individually they didn't do anything. So what, there wouldn't be any point in making this one different from that one because they're supposed to be doing the same thing together all the time, pulling together. But your your results uh, now looking at single neurons makes every single neuron look. Uh, a little bit different from all the others, uniquely different. And so we're, I think we're faced with the question of whether we want to take that seriously and believe it and say, yes, those neurons are unique. Each one of them's uh, axonal connections are slightly different from the others. Not, not always slightly, sometimes remarkably different from the others. And maybe that means something, or we just say, ah, just sort of accident in nature and it's kind of random and when, and, and nature just averages, the brain averages over all that variability in order to get a nice orderly result, which is, which is it. Yeah, so that actually, the, to some extent, I, or just some way, looking back at the, you know, the things, I, I kind of view this indirect, the direct-indirect thing is it was very powerful in terms of the model and it led to the you know, treatments for Parkinson's disease, but it was... We knew at the time it was an oversimplification of that. You know, we just knew at the time, you know, at the time. But, you know, it made sense and people liked the fact that you could tie it to Parkinson's disease. Um, but, um, you know, to my mind, the thing that was always going to be more interesting was the specificity beginning in the cortex of different channels, you know, going through the basal ganglia and what effect they had. And... You know, initially, one of the examples of that was the differences in projections to pat, the patch and matrix compartments. So right away, there was differences in, not right away, but so the patch matrix compartments represented, um, you know, uh, that the striatum wasn't, you know, uh, the same all over. There was sub parts of it, and there, and there was the, um, and the um, sort of... Remind us a little bit about what patch and matrix are. So... <laughs> So the thing about the striatum is that it's, you know, when you just look at it, of course, all the, the neurons, 95% of them are spiny projection neurons, they all look the same. And when you do, when you, they're distributed in a very homogeneous way. And so you look at that, oh, it's not like cortex, there's no layers in it, so there's not a stratification of different types. Um, but then there is, and the D1 and D2 direct indirect pathway neurons are completely intermingled you know, throughout this homogeneity. So if you look, on one hand, you can look at it and you've got, you know, D1 and D2 neurons completely intermingled and spread out throughout the whole stratum. It all looks homogeneous. And so, you know, what's this, what's, there's no structure there. There's no laminar, laminar organization. However, 
um, it had been seen for some time, you know, early on that there were different neurochemicals that seemed to uh, be uh, that mark different com- what we call compartments within the striatum. One of those was um, that the dopamine system first grows into the striatum in a way that creates these islands of um, areas where the dopamine first grows in, and then and you know, and Grabiel and and those guys um, showed that if you stain with acetylcholinesterase, a histochemical stain, that it labeled the areas that were um, outside of the dopamine islands and. And so we call that the matrix. And dopamine islands got termed patches because um, Candace Pert and uh, Miles Herkenham showed that when you looked at new opiate receptor binding, that it localized to these what they called patches. Um, and so there were these two compartments, neurochemically defined compartments, one of which we call matrix and the other patches. And um, what I had shown some time after that was that the neurons in the patches projected selectively to dopamine neurons, and the neurons in the matrix projected selectively to the GABA neurons in the substantia nigra. So that these were two uh, existing output pathways that were, you know, that there was in fact some sort of thing equivalent to the laminar organization cortex having to do with the projection patterns of the these two compartments. And then we also showed that there was a difference in terms of the cortical input to these. So that beginning in the cortex, there were, you know, there were these channels that were selectively targeting either, you know, neurons projected to um, different output structures, suggesting that there was like, you know, as we said, functional channels beginning in the cortex, very specifically going to different subtype, you know, different macroscopic, what we call macroscopic areas in the striatum, and that those macroscopic areas, you know, had connections with different parts of the downstream circuitry. Um, one of the questions, though, is whether or not there's specificity beginning in the cortex going to things like the D1 and D2, the direct and indirect pathway neurons. And uh, it looks like there uh, is, that there is such an organization, but it varies uh, depending on the cortical area of origin. Um, and so for years... You know, we had looked done anatomy and tracing by making injections of um, you know small groups of neurons, but there were still groups of neurons in different cortical areas, and so a lot of the anatomy was worked out by injecting tracer integrated tracers in the cortex and looking at the projections of you know hundreds of neurons and maybe even more to different areas, and so it gave rise to thinking about the the organization of these systems based on um, things like the spatial organization within the cortex uh, was maintained in the spatial targets in the striatum so that there was a top, what we call a topographic organization going from the cortex into the striatum. And that led to ideas that, well, the striatum um, receives a topographically organized input from the cortex. And since the cortex has functionally different areas, um, the striatum must have functionally distinct zones or regions that are related to the cortical function of those regions. Um, the thing that's very exciting for me, and that, that principle applies, you know, it holds, but then the thing that's very exciting now is that when we look at individual neurons within that population of those hundred neurons, each of those looks like they're doing something different. And, they, and so what I take that to be is that each of them has different information 
and they're spreading that information to different parts of the brain. And they're probably, we haven't looked at that yet, but it's almost certainly the case that they're receiving inputs from different parts of the brain. And so, you know, your idea, or your idea, what you demonstrated a long time ago was that, you know, individual spiny neurons receive input, no, individual pyramidal cortical neurons and make contact with only one spiny neuron. No, make contact with thousands of spiny neurons, but an individual spiny neuron only gets input from one, you know, there's one-to-one synapse. And so that suggests that, you know, each spiny neuron is receiving input from a thousand different cortical neurons. And what we're now able, what we see now is that those thousand cortical neurons are probably all very unique, you know. And so, so those projections we're looking at back then when we were, even now, we still do this. We label a cluster of neurons somewhere, and then we see the projections of that cluster, and we can't discern the individual contributions of the neurons within that cluster. And so we kind of squint our eyes and we blur over all those <coughs> differences among the neurons, and we call that the organization of the, of the projection. But actually, it's a bunch of different projections that are different from each other, and we're viewing them all superimposed on each other. Right. So, uh, so since you've been looking at, uh, we can just say that. I just say that, but I, I can't prove that. But you can, you can, I think, because you've now injected enough neurons individually to sort of reconstruct what you get out of one of these. Hundred neurons. Yeah, that's exactly, and it's a thing that's exciting. So this is work that's being done at Genelia Farms, the Hughes place, um, and uh, led by um, you know, the team there, Jerem, and uh, they're you know it's incredible, and so that's a real power. I think what's going to come out of that because you know I remember how hard it was for you guys to trace the axon projections of one neuron, you know, and in Toshi Kita when. The Kitas, when they did that that study, it was just like it's it was really hard, but it was really really important information. But they could do it only for you know a small number of neurons, and being able to have that you know the axonal projections of hundreds of neurons to be able to now analyze is incredible. And so that's what you know the the mouse light project at Genelia um, allows because it can do what you what you just were saying, I think. And um, I I'm now convinced that. Um, you know, people sometimes say, oh, well, it's, it's you know, when you look at the population, it's, um, you know, that they project randomly. It's like, no, I don't think so. I think that each of those neurons is projecting to a very discrete subset of, you know, each neuron, each cortical neuron might project to, you know, 10 other cortical areas, um, and they're not going randomly. So what, what's driving them at such a granular scale? But, because it, it almost seems, it, like you just said, it looks random, right? It, it's, you have one cell um, projecting to one region and a couple of regions, and its next-door neighbor is projecting to very different regions. Yeah. So if there was some kind of gradient, like you know how, they, how we, we think about in development, there are these gradients of, um, of, of genes that sort of drive development, then neurons right next to each other should be very similar to each other. Yet they're not. So something very specific to each neuron is what's driving where it's projecting to. Right? It can't be something coming from the outside that's similar to both of them, because otherwise neck neighbors would project similarly. 
It's actually interesting, isn't it? Because you look at that and say, oh, well, it's, you know, there's too much diversity there. Um, but I get back to the thing we were talking about initially, which is that there's still some general principles that apply. So we can go yeah. two ways. We can say, oh, they're all, everyone's different. Well, they're all different, but they're all different within a class. And so even, you know, the, those are all the ones that we were looking, we are talking about are the intertelian and cephalic type. And so those are different than the pyramidal tract type because they, um, they all have projections that stay within the cortex and only to the striatum, and sometimes they go bilaterally, whereas the pyramidal tract only go one way. So they do have something in common in terms of, you know, that. Yeah, that, that, and then, that so could be explained, right? Yeah, so that, but, so, but there is, and then, but within there, there's this huge diversity. And so then the question is, well, what's driving that, that yeah. diversity? So and, could it and, be that there are subclasses of neurons, and so we'd have to classify the, the IT neurons as each one of them belongs to some set of subclasses? If, if so, how many subclasses so would I it think, take to represent all I, the diversity? I think it turns out that there are going to be subclasses of those that we can, but right now um, we don't have enough, even though we've got more than we ever had before, axonal projections of individual neurons. So let's say we have right now 200. Um, it might take you know, a thousand to actually work out the subclasses because we've tried. We started to be able to do that analysis where you can, you know, now that we have the the data, we can actually do the analysis that's going to be necessary to subclassify them, doing you know cluster analysis based on their projection patterns, and um, and so I, we're going to be able to do that, and um, but we don't. I don't know the answer. We don't know the answer. And then the question is, what's the developmentally driving it? There's got to be markers. Yeah, yeah that's, what I, I don't, that's what I don't. I, I believe that there are going to turn. It turns. Yeah, what you said is that sometimes there, um, you know, there are gradients that can end up. You know, when you have opposing gradients, and you can get stripes, or you yeah, know, you can get. You know, uh, you can get regions. You can get segmentation. Get segmentation. Segmentation. That's and all how, that with with you know opposing gradients, um, and then. You know, there might be, you know, multidimensional gradients at play there. Mm-hmm. So one, one, one of my questions is, it gets into the, so I guess one way to answer the question, so do all the clusters go down to one? <laughs> do you eventually cluster things into each neuron is unique and specify <clears throat> in some kind of particular way? At that point, the idea of a cell type, it kind of disappears. Yeah, or that you just have a hierarchy of, Similarity, right? And then, so you really have real clust- clusters that are segregating, except that some are more similar than others, or they have a, a heredity from, you know, some some cues are stronger than others and segregating into groups, and then you split those groups, and you split those groups, and you split those groups. Um, I never thought about it before, but that's a really good way of looking at it. Is that you could have, you can. It would be where you could put a threshold on what you call a what did you call a subtype, and it could be you know because I believe I'm kind of along with what Charlie's leading to is that every neuron's unique, and so that then you have how many neurons are there in the cortex? That's how many subtypes there are. Right. Well, that's not very satisfying. <laughs> so, but you could build this hierarchical tree, and then depending on what your question was, you could set that threshold. And define it. And so one way then these you could set the threshold at you know whatever would distinguish IT and PT neurons, you know that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And then another would be okay. We know actually from the IT and P, from the PT the, the example that we showed where there's 
the you know the medulla projecting versus the thalamic projecting um, PT uh, neurons. Uh, we know from that already that they're uh, subtypes of the medulla projecting type because it depends on what you know medulla nucleus that they're targeting. You know, and so those are that's another subclass there. And then they're ones that project to um, yeah. But I like that idea of just being able to you know draw this hierarchical tree, and then you could and that that I think can address the lumpers and splitter question. Yeah, but the, <laughs> yeah. But the question is whether it's a real hierarchy because you have the other question about topography. So people have these notions of loops. Yes, they're loops, and they're yes, they're topographic. But there's also crosstalk of whatever. So you have both. Uh, columns and loops and not columns and loops, right? They're cross-talking. So often with topography, how much, how granular is the topography? Is it this area goes to this area and similar areas go to similar places or is it really like a two-dimensional sheet uh, topography if you go sub, 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 sub yeah. or does it break down? Or is the topography a principle that gets violated uh, and and some of these things, and there's I mean, even in you know areas of the cortex, you go and there's projections across areas that aren't you know, supposed to be there. They're not supposed, supposed to be there because they're yeah. this color, you know, is area of you know whatever forty seven or something, and some of them are more segregated than than others. Uh, so at some point, you can get soft clustering where there is really overlap and a mixture. So the question is, I guess, in terms of diversity, how is that specified? And one way to think about specificity is, right, there's, you know, a whole matrix of cues of things. But it's also you can get individual variability. Suppose you get similar cues, except you're competing. Uh, so you're, you're kind of competing for things. And you're not all, you can't all do the same thing. Because if someone beats you there, or, you know, one neuron beats you there, you've you got to go somewhere else. Right, a growth rule. So you could have all the neurons be exactly the same, but each neuron has a slightly different history from the others. And then they end up being different from each other because of that history. So if they're following some kind of rule that says when they branch, and yeah. then... Uh, but then there has to be some kind of feedback because then the, the neuron has to know where it's projecting to. Otherwise, you just get, you get this growth rule, and depending on who gets there first on whatever, for whatever reason then if this neuron now ends up projecting to somewhere it's not supposed to be projecting to, then you, you can kind of imagine how that things just go wrong more often than not, right? That certainly happens with, like, other things. With other things, yeah. yeah. So, but it doesn't happen with the brain. I, the, the basal ganglia still does what the basal ganglia does. Uh, it's just somehow there's still some, some directionality that's almost whether we want to call it the single cell level or a very small, sparse cluster of cells level. but Well, the question is, well, I mean, most of the, the usual answer in biology is it's probably both, both yeah, things are happening, like, right? Like you, like you say, it's not very satisfying. <laughs> so the question is, what's the interaction between the cues of the specificity and right. the other things that aren't specificity? So the cool thing is when you start to get enough data at the level of individual neurons to make things like probabilistic clusters, then you can ask, are they really clustered? Are they overlapping a lot? And you have to do lots of things, and they may be very segregated for one kind of assay and not so segregated in another kind of way. And so you can maybe start to get a sense of what's really the important 
clear segregation that may be a real signal that you can't do this and you, you, you're allowed to do that. But in there, there may be a lot of fuzziness. So, you know, types of things that you are multiple types, depending on the day or something like that, or a little bit of that or a little bit of that. And then you can tell which of those, because those properties that you get, some of them may be one way and some may be the other. We have no idea. But you can start to measure them now because you have enough data to make probabilistic statements. Yeah. Right? You can't make a probabilistic statement on 10 neurons or whatever. You can start to be a 1,000. You can start to look at correlations and probabilistic. Yeah. Well, I look at statements. it also from back starting in the cortex is the, the idea that different neurons are going, you know, have different information. And so, and, um, and so sometimes, or some of that information is, uh, needs to be distributed, to, let's say, to the whole stratum or to at least a large part of it, whereas other information needs to be just, you know, distributed to a much uh, more restricted um, area because of um, what it's going to be combined with uh, or, what it's, you know, or what information it's providing. And so um, I think ultimately it's going to be what is the information that each of those cortical neurons has. So there you're, I think you're saying that the variation among cells of a type has functional importance. So if it, right, that's yeah, what you're yeah, saying. And so that means the fact that this neuron is different from that neuron actually reflects a difference in function between those two neurons, even though they may be in the same class. Right. And so if, um, if that's the case, then let's hope that that variation among neurons did not occur by some random process, but instead occurred by some growth rule or something that directed each cell to the right targets given what its function is supposed to be. Yeah. And at that point, uh, cells that belong to the same type don't all have exactly the same function. So, which... Uh, which uh, yeah. It seems so intuitive. Building a nervous system and operating a nervous system are two such different processes, why would we expect, you know, the, the information flow versus actual um, building the organizational structure just seem to be such, two such different things? You imagine like a sort of a shift at one point from, from things getting to where they need to be and then becoming little information yeah, can, processes can, that then... Can activity be somewhat independent of anatomy? Right, so... Say that information. Again. Can activity be somewhat independent of anatomy? So you can have two cells. No. Right next to each other. Well, so. Discuss. <laughs> so a, a, um, a cell can project to a number of places, right? Um, and it can, be, it, it can be active at that time or not, and it can be active um, under different situations. Um, so, yeah, of course, a, a neuron has to have a projection to a place to to have an effect on that place. Right. But you can, you can imagine the same um, behavior, having a, having a cell be active or not active, depending on a number of different parameters that's going on in the, in the rest of the brain. And so um, something that we could say is like the direct pathway does one thing and the indirect pathway does another thing. But then when we look at individual neurons and we see an animal either stopping or going, you can't tell which one would be an indirect or direct pathway neuron because there's all sort of a happening, right? Um, so depending on what's going on on each individual neuron, even though one pathway is supposed to be telling the animal to stop and the other one's supposed to be telling the animal to go, that doesn't seem to be what's happening at the 
that may be happening at the population level when we use optogenetics or when we do deep brain stimulation. But if we look at the actual neurons as the animal's just doing whatever the animal does without having us mess with it, each individual neuron doesn't seem to be following that rule, right? In that anatomical yeah. rule that we imposed on it. So does that mean does that mean that that the thing we see with optogenetics or with stimulation is is somehow misleading and illusion about how the brain really works? Because it can be yeah. by making the <laughs> neurons all do the same thing, we're just sort of blurring the function of the brain completely. Or or is it that the individual neurons are are not authoritative, and that the only thing that really matters is what the giant population is doing. That's, well, a lot of times people say that. They say individual neurons are not authoritative. No. Right? Yeah, I mean, maybe they're not authoritative, but I don't know of any scenario where the entire indirect pathway acts as one, and just fire, they all fire together in synchrony, and then stop in synchrony, right? Like, like would happen with DBS or with optogenetics. So it may be true that they don't have much authority individually, but, I, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, well, <laughs> I, I was thinking that one of the, uh, the way I look at that is that I think it's just wrong to say that the indirect pathway is responsible for stopping. Right. You know, you can make, you can make an animal stop by activating the indirect pathway, but that doesn't mean... Because you, if you if you activate all of them together, and um, and that it's that the animals stop, but that that's not what those neurons are right. doing, yeah. uh, or what they're contributing to, you know, normal behavior. Well, I, well, some well, of it's like the because it's the same it's the same way of thinking when you when you do that. Do you have because they have different projections, right? So they go to different places. Does is uh, stopping versus going mean the you know, this nucleus shuts down and this one goes up? Is that what happens during normal behavior? No, it's some mix of coordination of a balance of things that are ongoing activity. It's not like when you do yes and no, the whole nuclei shut down, right? So in normal activity, you, you're getting a balance or coordination. And if you shut down a whole bunch of or stimulate one whole population, it may give rise to a certain kind of imbalance over the whole circuit that screws things up in a pretty simple way but maybe you have to stop and start a little bit and and for each movement it's not like it's a yes or no thing right so it's a balance of lots of things normally right so you need both yeah i think i was still think about the basal ganglia is it just seems to me that there's way too much convergence going from cortex through all the circuitry to be able to be responsible itself for precise movements Mm-hmm. You know, and so that it's got to be doing something. Whatever effect it's having is more of a, you know, a broader. Effect. Are there any clues in the variation among cortical regions and how much they converge? So one of your findings is that somatosensory projections to the striatum are more discrete and topographical and motor, less so, and. And then the farther you go, if you go to the secondary motor, it's, it's even less. It's even less. Yeah. So is there a, so if I go to, to the frontal pole, which you mark as M2, and I, I accept that. <laughs> the, and, I don't mark and the it mouse, up, yeah. I don't really know where all that <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. Are, but 
um, if I go there, I would see axonal arborizations that are large and, and obey, disobey boundaries a lot. Whereas if I go into... Well, that's actually what's, that's what we show. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 what, right. that's what comes out of the and single axon tracing. Whereas if I go into a, a barrel, I would see an axon that, that really projects in a very discreet way in the strata. Well, so what is that? I mean, what does that tell us about the, the role of topographic organization in the in movement and in basal ganglia. Doesn't that seem like an important clue? I don't know exactly how to interpret it. Yeah, well, that's the that's that's point we were trying to make was that the, I was trying to make was that the, um, we can understand precision in terms of the somatotopic organization because it just basically maps our body surface, you know, onto a two-dimensional sheet. We can, and so the, the, each barrel has a very discrete area. And so when that maps, you know, when you map that, Somatotopically, you know, you can imagine mapping it, and that the, you know, that you still need to have a segregation in the terminal areas of those projections. That you know the barrels don't cross react with the, or you know, don't overlap the projections of the arm or the form or whatever. Um, and so that may, and so that's what we're seeing when we look when we look at that, you know, quantitatively. The motor also ha- the motor. Uh, the cortex also has a map. The motor cortex has a map, but it's not as precise. Even in motor cortex. In the motor cortex, because what would that? What would what would the equivalent motor cortex be to the the surface of your you know the body surface? Because the muscles, um, you know, are not organized that same way, and so yeah. and and uh, and also to get any in, in you know any individual movement. Requires multiple muscles, um, and so it's just not as so. There's a rougher. There is a um, a somatotopy in the muscle or in the M1, and people when they stimulate, and that's one of the things I think when when you stimulate the motor cortex, you can get depending on how high the free, you know how large the stimulation is, you can get per, you know localized movements, and that was people had generated the equivalent of the somatotopic map. For motor cortex, but it gets kind of dicey when you know when you actually look at the precision of that, and so it's broader. And I think it's just because of oh, the, the fact that it's sloppier in striatum is just a reflection of the fact that it's sloppier in cortex. Well, that's the point, exactly. Uh-huh. No, that's the point I was trying to make. Is it's sloppier in the striatum because it's sloppier in cortex, uh-huh. and then when you go to the secondary motor areas, those are not necessarily those thing. You know, the what's the information that's encoded there is not. Um, you know, specific, you know, you know, simple movements. It's actually, you know, movements to, you know, a simple movement would be I'm going to flex my arm. Uh, you know, the type of movement that's encoded in secondary motor cortex would be I'm going to reach and grab the, right. you know, the bottle. So I'm going to lick the. I'm if you look at individual thing. axonal arborizations, then the individual corticostriatal axonal arborizations are the same size if they come from M2 as if they come from S1. Is that true? Wait, say that again. The individual axonal arborizations are the same size, regardless of whether they come from S1 or they come no. from M2. Uh-huh. Because if the They're not only... The, but also there's a diversity there, so that some might be the same, but most are not. Uh-huh. So there is some additional sloppiness added in the just the axonal arborization right. difference between M2 and right. S1. 
Well, that's one of the things we can now quantify and determine. That's what yeah. it looks like from the bulk injections, but we don't know that on the single ah, axis. Oh, no, that's, that no, isn't so that, known yet. That yeah, isn't that's not known yet. So, okay. And also, I would say that it's going to be complicated because maybe there's a subclass. Maybe, it, again, it gets back to what's infor- what information is being provided by those different cortical neurons. And so it might be that in somatosensory cortex, they're not all providing the same information. Some are providing information about you know, the deflection of the whisker and others are providing, you know, when it goes, whatever, you know, there's, and so, and the same for muscles. So what about the the hierarchy on the sensory side? Is it less specific? Yes. If you go outside primary? I just said that because that's what I would expect. That's what I would predict, but I don't know that. There's still a lot more to find out by doing this method. It's just getting started. It's getting started, but that's, but that's the way it seems to be. That's the way to go. A single axon anatomy is going to revolutionize the way we think about uh, structure how organ- of the, how the structure of information. Yeah. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you for joining Wonderful. us. This Good discussion. A great conversation. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. And-